The following pre-recorded program is paid for by SSI Guardian. Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg with your host, psychologist and author, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Living Well with Dr. Peg explores a variety of mental health, wellness, and safety topics brought to you by SSI Guardian. Living Well with Dr. Peg shares effective and practical psychological strategies based on biblical principles for living well and staying safe. To listen to previous episodes, learn more about Dr. Peg's mental health and safety workshops, or to register for an upcoming VIP personal transformation retreat. Visit drpegradio.com. And now, here's your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell Clark. Hello, listeners. Are you feeling stuck? Are you ready for a change? If so, I'd like to invite you to participate in one of my Do Something Different for a Change VIP personal transformation retreats. Enjoy a full day of refreshment, reflection, and strategic planning in an individual retreat or small group session. We'll explore where you are. Determine where you want to go and identify what's holding you back. You'll leave with a personalized plan to accelerate your personal transformation and help you walk in freedom and purpose. Go to drpegradio.com to reserve your spot in a Do Something Different for a Change personal transformation retreat. Well, it's just great to be back with you again for another episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg, which is brought to you every week by our sponsor, SSI Guardian. We're coming to you from Denver, Colorado and streaming around the world online and from your smartphone apps. And if you missed last week's episode or any episode of Living Well with Dr. Pegg, be sure to go to drpegradio.com for the program archives. And also check out drpegradio.com for information about the show, my sponsor, and a variety of my mental health, wellness, and safety consulting services, workshops, books, and retreats. Have you ever been involved in or witnessed a person who has been seriously injured in a machinery accident or a car accident? Perhaps you've seen the many injured people on televised reports of war or acts of terror. And I can remember uh, seeing injured and bleeding people running away from the blast during the Boston Marathon. And unfortunately, we all have those images in our heads. Trauma at work, in schools, and other public locations or at home can be caused by routine accidents, natural disasters, or intentional acts of violence and terrorism. And often there's a delay in receiving a professional medical response. And unfortunately, this delay often exceeds the time it takes for someone to bleed to death. And the solution is for the public to have immediate access to certain medical devices and effective life-saving information. And my guest today is Mr. Paul Vecchio who's Vice President of Training and Special Programs with North American Rescue, and he will share some of that life-saving information that we all need. Uh, Paul Vecchio, thank you so much for being my guest today, and welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Dr. Penny. Glad to be here. Yes, and I've, I've heard you speak before and teach before, and um, just some really important information. I'm just so grateful that you'll be able to share it with my listeners uh, today. And I know you have a really interesting background um, in emergency care is what we're going to be talking about. Can you tell the listeners how you got started and exactly what it is that you do today and all about North American Rescue? Yes. Well, my, my medical background is actually from the U.S. military. Mm-hmm. I served with the U.S. Army Special Forces for 22 years and retired in 2005, and my principal 
occupational specialty was medicine. Mm-hmm. So that's where I got my start in the uh, pre-hospital setting. And from there on, I moved to a civilian job with the Medical College of Georgia. And there I was responsible for running programs to train uh, under some different federal contracts, federal agents that would deploy overseas to the various theaters of war and other locations where pre-hospital medicine is a very important uh, skill to have for those individuals. And from that position, I moved on to another company that was involved with diplomatic security at some of our high-risk embassies and was there for about four and a half years and then eventually came to North American Rescue where I work with uh, others at the program to uh, provide solutions that mitigate uh, preventable death on a battlefield or preventable death in a pre-hospital setting for our law enforcement officers, first responders, and unfortunately, as you mentioned, the civilian population is finding itself in some very serious incidents around the country on a regular basis. So there's also a need for that population to have knowledge of the types of devices that can save lives. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for your service, Paul, and uh, just you have an extensive background and expertise that we're going to uh, pick your brain today. And I believe the information you'll say, share today will save lives. Yes, I certainly hope so. Yes. Well, much of what we know and are applying today does come from those military and combat environments, uh, battlefield experiences, um, as as we see with your background, really reflects that. Can you say more about uh, the emergency care paradigm that's uh, used in those tactical environments and, and other austere environments? Absolutely. So if you look at the history of U.S. warfare going back to World War II, Korea and Vietnam. The medical paradigm that the military utilized was more of a medic-centric model. In other words, if there was a casualty on the battlefield, that individual didn't really receive life-saving aid until they were confronted by the medic, the designated person in that unit. And as we all know, that can have an immensely problematic issue from a bottleneck standpoint and resource standpoint. So then approximately uh, 1993, right after the Battle of Mogadishu in Somalia, uh, special operations forces and commanders began to look at this very critically and gave thought to thinking maybe we should consider, rather than having a medic-centric model, we switch to a warrior-centric model where every warfighter, every soldier on the ground has basic medical skills and is equipped with basic medical devices to save lives. So that led to, in 1996, the development of what's called Tactical Combat Casualty Care, or TCCC. And the TCCC uh, model was exactly as I stated. That gave every warfighter the basic ability to save lives for some preventable deaths on the battlefield. And I'll discuss what preventable death is in a moment. So then in 2001, right after 9-11, a committee formed for the Tactical Combat Casualty Care under DOD, And by 2004, uh, well into uh, the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, they began to equip all soldiers of the military, Marine Corps, and other services with individual first aid kits, and they mandated the pre-deployment training so those soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Coast Guardsmen would have the skills necessary to save lives. Mm -hmm. And then in 2011, the civilian EMS community adopted the principles of TCCC and created Tactical Emergency Casualty Care, 
or TECC. And today we see EMS first responders and we see law enforcement equipped with individual kits, much like those warfighters. And we're seeing the same reduced case fatality rates. As an example, in World War II in Korea, prior to the adoption of TCCC, the case fatality rate was about 19.1%. That dropped dramatically to, to about 9.4% in the middle of the global war on terrorism. So there's been much success in adopting that principle and changing that paradigm. Mm-hmm. Wow, it's just fascinating uh, to see how much of our medical technology and medical practices and, and kind of procedures evolved from uh, that um, the battlefield, uh, the need on the battlefield, and just to be able to see the casualty rates decline so dramatically, uh, that, that means a lot to every single family member who, who did not lose a loved one on the battlefield. That's just awesome. Yes, indeed. Well, you talked about uh, preventable death. Uh, what are some of the leading causes of preventa- preventable death? And, and can you kind of clarify what you mean by that pre-hospital setting and pre-hospital medicine? Yes, absolutely. So a pre-hospital setting is any environment, whether that's a, a combat situation or a law enforcement um, tactical situation or just a simple accident on the highway, that occurs prior to that individual that's injured going to the hospital. It could be in a wilderness setting where hikers and backpackers Mm -hmm. injure themselves in the wilderness, and they must receive pre-hospital care before they they actually see the physicians in the emergency rooms. Mm -hmm. So that's what that term represents. And as far as preventable death, it's really categorized into three main areas. Uh, And I should take a step back for a moment and go over some statistics that have come from the battlefield. Of all the uh, individuals that have died in combat, 100% that have died in combat, it's estimated approximately 80% of those individuals, there's absolutely no medical interventions that could have saved their lives Mm -hmm. whatsoever, from point of wounding to the definitive care. So that 80%, there's nothing that the soldier or the medic could do for them on the battlefield. So the 20% that there could be interventions for is divided down into three different categories. And these are the three types of preventable death. It's hemorrhage from an extremity, so bleeding from the arms and legs, something called tension pneumothorax, which is basically when there's penetrating trauma to the chest by means of a projectile or a knife wound, air can get in through that uh, opening and compress the lungs against the chest wall and cause death. And the third type of preventable death is loss of an airway. And by percent on the battlefield, it breaks down to about 60% of those individuals that had that could have been saved would have extremity hemorrhage. About 33% would have the syndrome called tension pneumothorax or penetration to the torso. And about 7% would have issues with the airway. So that's how that, if you think of a pie chart, would break down to different sections. So uh, the, the majority is that uh, hemorrhaging in the extremities. Um, how, how is this information relevant for my average listener? I understand the, the military um, um, setting and context, law enforcement and tactical, maybe you know, injured um, or shot um, in the line of duty. Uh, but here in Colorado, I think it's, it's really relevant. Uh, you caught my interest with the wilderness and hiking, and we have skiers 
um, almost every year there we see news reports of people who are missing for any number of days and and searches um, ensue to find them. So if they were to have accidents or highway accidents, um, how how is this sixty uh, percent um, kind of slice of the pie chart? How is that relevant for for everyday people? Well, absolutely. If you look at um, <clears throat> data from the CDC, uh, trauma is the number one cause of death for people between the ages of one to forty-four years old, where the cause was either accidental or non-accidental trauma. So that's a, a fairly high number. I believe in 2014, that amounted to approximately 200,000 people. Mm-hmm. And of that number, and these are civilian uh, populations, not military, mm-hmm. of the civilian populations in 2014, that 200,000 people that died, approximately 35% of them died in a pre-hospital setting, mm-hmm. and about 40% would die within 24 hours. And hemorrhage was listed as one, one of the number one causes in those uh, trauma incidents. So again, it's a, if you look at things from an all-hazards perspective, a, a natural disaster, a, uh, a traffic accident, uh, an accident in the wilderness setting, as you mentioned, um, there could be bleeding. Mm-hmm. And especially when there's bleeding from an extremity, there's, there's really no excuse to allow a person to die from that because it's such a simple mm. method and technique of stopping that bleeding. So that's basically from the civilian uh, perspective of how these are, are really relevant. Mm-hmm. Then if you look at the FBI report that was done in 2014, they looked at all the uh, active shooting events that occurred in the United States, in total 160. And in their report, they looked at the nation and they saw that the largest segment of the population that were affected were those that work in the commercial setting. About 45.6% of people wounded and killed were in that type of environment. The second highest environment was an education. So your K through 12 and higher learning institutions, there was about a 24.4% of those individuals that were either killed or wounded as a result of an active shooter. So when we look at the data, they do break down by event and by year, how many people per incident were injured and how many people in those incidents were killed. And I, I can't help but think that some of those people that were that died might have had preventable injuries such as uh, bleeding from an extremity mm-hmm. or a simple manipulation of the airway or other maybe sealing the chest wall that may have had penetrating trauma. So there's probably a number. We may not know what exactly it is, but I would, I would speculate that there'd be a reduced number of deaths in those types of incidents in the mm-hmm. civilian setting. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, that's so compelling to know. Um, you know, here in Colorado, we've had these types of mass casualty casualty events and um, to wonder how many people um, may have been able to be saved had they had some of the basic information and equipment that we'll be talking about uh, today. Um, I want to I shift gears a little bit uh, to put this into a practical application context. Um, we, we, one of the themes of my show is safety and violence prevention, and we know how important bystanders are in preventing school shootings and, and other types of active shooter incidents, as you reference those stats. Uh, and the bystander in that context is someone who, someone nearby who may overhear the plans of an attacker or threat of, an, of a, a potential attacker. They may observe something, or they may even be told or warned by the attacker about the impending attack. And, and we talk about bystander intervention in that context, how important it is if you see something to say something. 
Uh, but uh, it seems that bystanders would also be critical in responding to active shooting incidents or responding to a highway accident or a wilderness um, trauma. Um, and, and we would call that uh, immediate responders. Um, can, can you talk more about the role of the bystander or immediate responder uh, in the context of this pre-hospital intervention? Absolutely. And you even mentioned an incident where we saw some heroic efforts of just average mm-hmm. American citizens yep. that were witness to the Boston Marathon That's incident. Right. Yeah. Uh, several of those casualties were, were managed by just innocent bystanders mm-hmm. who happened to be at the right place at the right time that could render care, and they did render care, and they did make a difference. Mm-hmm. So the immediate responder is, is just the everyday citizen in America that happens to be able and willing in the right place at the right time to render aid to a fellow citizen. And there are multiple examples of this, not just here in the United States, but even going back to the Madrid uh, train bombings. Uh, if you look carefully at some of the images of that incident, you'll see that there were commuters that teamed up and helped out some of those injured commuters because they had a sense of, uh, of being a belonging to that, that group. So it's a dynamic that certainly exists of people willing to help others. And, and luckily here in the United States, we have many good Samaritan laws that protect those that are willing to render aid. And, and when you think about hemorrhage control, you think about stop the bleeding, that's a very non-invasive procedure of simply applying direct pressure and perhaps a device that stops the bleeding. So it's, um, it certainly is a critical thing that we have citizens that are willing to help others in any event, whether it's accidental or intentional violence. Mm-hmm. And and let's talk specifically about schools and workplaces uh, that would probably, uh, in in, a, in addition to, to commercial um, environments, commerce environments, uh, what would be some examples of um, bystanders in a school uh, work setting or in um, uh, someone's uh, day-to-day uh, job duties or as they uh, go to the mall or or what have you. Who are who are some of the people or roles or job descriptions who could be potential bystanders and immediate responders in an event? Yes, yeah, so certainly in the school situation, your your teachers, uh, your administrators, um, your coaches, the personnel that are a part of the staff of that school. Every one of them would be considered to be an immediate responder. Uh, some of these schools do have uh, designated personnel that are in, that are directly required to have the understanding for medicine. That'll be your your school nurses, and they have responsibilities for safety, such as your your school resource officers. Mm-hmm. But you know, given some of the scenarios of school shootings where the, the entire campus is locked down, uh, classrooms are isolated, perhaps the school nurse cannot get to the injured uh, people because of that reason. Or maybe there are so many casualties that that would overwhelm the school nurse's ability to, to properly treat each and every one of those individuals. So having additional staff like your teachers and coaches and other personnel that are assigned to the school as employees, that gives more hands to do more work to save more lives. Mm-hmm. And the same would be true for your business setting, your, your office staff, your office managers, uh, anyone that's working in that environment. Each and every person would be, you know, a, a potential immediate responder for their fellow coworkers. Mm-hmm. So that would be the types of examples of, 
of roles in that setting. Right, right. I, I viewed a video that was produced by um, our sponsor, SSI Guardian, and they have a partnership with you at North American Rescue, and it was a very compelling video of a, of a student in shop class, and he had an accident in the shop class involving the, um, the rotary saw or what, you know, one of those big giant saws that, uh, that spins really fast. So he had this horrible cut to his arm, uh, but fortunately he had um, a teacher who had some training and the appropriate equipment to help. So it really um, paints a picture of how uh, you might have a designated medical person on the premises, but they just can't get to you fast enough. You're in, in the classroom or the wood shop, which is maybe uh, at, at another end of the building. And so to wait for someone to come, uh, I can also think of an example where maybe you're in a, a remote area where the EMS response time might be delayed. And so being able to to render aid immediately um, uh, with different trained personnel, uh, teachers or administrators, managers, as you mentioned, that would just really be critical and, and life-saving. Yes, and you really touched upon something very important that I hope um, your listeners will be able to understand when it comes to response time. Mm-hmm. And according to the National EMS Information System, or NEMSIS, I did a survey of the, uh, the first quarter of 2016, and the national average for EMS response to the scene of an incident was eight minutes and seven seconds. Mm. And that was a cross-section of urban, suburban, rural, and wilderness conditions. So in eight minutes and seven seconds was the national average from when 911 is called to when there's actually first responders that are trained in their advanced life support measures to be there with the casualty. Now, when you consider that time of eight minutes and seven seconds as national response time, and you look at the medicine and the evidence, I'll just give some examples. Uh, the National Association of EMTs, NAEMT, has a course called Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support, or PHTLS. According to their curriculum, if you have a completely severed femoral artery and vein, completely severed, you can bleed to death in three minutes. Mm. The American College of Surgeons did a study, and they estimate the bleed-out time for a femoral disruption to be as fast as five minutes. So when you compare those traumatic injuries and bleed out times, it only takes us to lose about 40% of our blood volume where we go into a decompensating shock or a condition in which if we do not have an immediate blood transfusion, there is no hope of resuscitation. Mm. So in a pre-hospital setting, it's very grim to have somebody at that level of bleeding in that short amount of time, knowing that the health really can't get there fast enough. And that does make a compelling argument for having the types of devices and, and skills and, and training at the point of wounding that the immediate responder can at least buy some time so when EMS does show up, they have a much less complicated case to deal with. Mm-hmm. Wow, those are some compelling numbers. And, and when you have an average of eight minutes and seven-second response time across different kind of um, uh, geographic regions, that means that the response time is often even longer than eight minutes um, when we look at that average. And so, all, again, even more uh, compelling reason for um, immediate responders um, to, to be paying attention. We just have a little bit of time here before we go uh, to our break, but I wanted to just introduce um, uh, what's called the Hartford Consensus uh, that it came as a result uh, in the aftermath of Sandy Hook. It was an important policy initiative 
that was implemented. Um, can you just talk very briefly about um, the Hartford consensus? And there was uh, one, two, and three <laughs> consensus. Uh, maybe just talk about Hartford consensus one. We just have about a minute before we go to break. Okay, Hartford consensus named after Hartford, Connecticut, mm-hmm. which is where uh, Dr. Lentworth Jacobs, a trauma surgeon in that area, looked at some of the wounding patterns of those children teachers that were, were killed in that incident. And he gathered together a group of uh, the nation's top trauma physicians and other experts to ask the question, what is it we can recommend as emergency physicians and trauma surgeons as best practices that can help some of these people from not dying in the pre-hospital setting? And the Harper Consensus One report was published on the on April of 2013. And I'll go ahead and interrupt you there, Paul. We'll go ahead and take a break, and we'll hear about the results and conclusions of the Hartford Consensus when we come back. My guest is Paul Vecchio with North American Rescue. Stay with us. We'll be back. One needs to look no further than today's headlines to understand the threats facing American schools. They remain soft targets for violent threats, and yet our schools go largely underprepared. Our children deserve the highest level of education in the safest learning environment possible. The SSI Guardian QAL, or Quick Action Lockdown, is the fastest and safest way to lock down a classroom. This revolutionary device provides schools with maximum locking protection while meeting all safety, fire, and building codes. Designed by the leading lock experts in the world, the QAL is the only lock that meets Department of Homeland Security primer recommendations. SSI Guardian QAL now makes classroom lockdowns fast and safe with the red button. As a parent, you have every right to demand that your child is afforded the best classroom protection. Take action today by calling SSI Guardian at 877-878-5800 or go to guardianprotect.com. That's guardianprotect.com. With SRN News, I'm Ron DeRockstra. A federal law enforcement official says legal permanent U.S. residents and visa holders from seven Muslim-majority countries who are out of the country will not be allowed back for the next 90 days. The official said that's a result of the executive order signed yesterday by President Trump. The order also suspends all refugee admissions to the U.S. for four months and bans the entry of Syrian refugees indefinitely. Meanwhile, Iran is suggesting it will limit visas for American tourists in retaliation for the president's order. An overnight fires destroyed a Texas mosque that was the target of hatred several years ago and experienced a burglary just a week ago. The fire marshal in Victoria, about 115 miles southwest of Houston, has asked for help from the Texas Fire Marshal's Office and Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. And Serena Williams wins her 23rd Grand Slam, beating Sister Venus at the Australian Open. This is SRN News. Renting in Denver? Denver rents have consistently gone up in 014, 15, and through today. Can you imagine how high your rents will be next year? You already know this, but you've struggled to save $10,000, $20,000 or more in down payment to buy your own home. I'm Brian Murphy, owner of Front Range Mortgage, and I may have your ticket out of renting and into a home of your own. We are proud to announce our new 1% down payment purchase program that can get you out of your landlord's pocket and into your own home. 1% down payment equals $3,000 to get you into a $300,000 home. That's $3,000 to own your own home. Call me and my local Colorado-only team for a painless five-minute conversation to see how quickly we can get you into your own home with a mere 1% down payment. 
Our number, 303-500-1900. That's 303-500-1900. Or visit frontrangemortgage.com. And MLS 378844, regulated by the Division of Real Estate. If you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, please listen. Families destroyed, lives ruined. We've seen it countless times, and it happens to good people. It's not too late to get help. Hi, I'm Eric Lapp, founder of the Raleigh House of Hope Addiction Treatment Centers right here in Denver. I founded the Raleigh House because I've seen the devastation firsthand. Addiction hurts, but there is a way back. Our skilled team is here for you. You've been thinking about getting help. Now is the time. Call the Raleigh House of Hope at 720-729-2221. That's 720-729-2221. You buy a vacuum, you expect it to work. You purchase a lamp, you want it to turn on and off. And when they don't, turn to Anderson's Vacuum. Since 1947, Anderson's Vacuum has been repairing all major brands of vacuums, air purifiers, lamps, even sewing machines. And they provide warranty repair for many major brands. When you know how things work, you know how to fix them. You can rely on six decades of experience at Anderson's Vacuum in Inglewood. Details online at andersonsvacuum.com. To learn more about living well with Dr. Peg, visit drpegradio.com. And now, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Welcome back, everyone. I'm talking with Paul Vecchio with North American Rescue, and we're talking about life-saving interventions uh, that developed and evolved from the battlefield into schools and uh, workplaces and buses uh, and how important it is for immediate responders. Every single one of us is an immediate responder, aren't we, uh, Paul? How important it is for us to know what to do. And we're going to uh, get to that important life-saving information over the course of the remainder of the show. So, Paul, you were talking about the... the, um, Hartford consensus that arose out of in the aftermath of Sandy Hook, looking at um, how um, people were killed and injured. Can can you continue on with that? Absolutely. So Dr. Jacobs and the American College of Surgeons, they convened and published the first report, which was released on the 2nd of April, 2013. Very shortly thereafter, as you recall, on the 15th of April, the Boston Marathon bombings mm. occurred. So the group reconvened. They brought in more specialists, more physicians from around the country, more organizations, and they came up with a, um, a couple of different things. Number one was to uh, really advocate the immediate bystander to be able to do hemorrhage control by means of using tourniquets and pressure dressings and other devices. And they also developed what was known as the THREAT acronym. So the THREAT acronym is a... Um, a model of what should take place in those types of situations where the T stands for threat suppression, which is clearly the role of your law enforcement personnel. But then the H in threat stands for hemorrhage control. And hemorrhage control can happen immediately upon the injury and insult to the the anatomy of the individual. That's where the pressure dressing or the tourniquet should be applied. And then the, the R and the E of threat talks about rapid extrication to safety. So moving that casually really out of the hot zone and into a warm zone and ultimately to the green zone where it is a a safe area. The A stands for the assessment done by medical providers. And then eventually the T stands for transport to definitive care. Mm. So the threat acronym was posted into the 
Harper Consensus 1, 2, and 3 documents. Uh, the third document was authored later on, and that was also another hallmark uh, um, publication that came out in April of 2015, where the phrase, if you see something, do something, came about. Now, I'm sure all of you listeners are familiar with the Department of Homeland Security's phrase, if you see something, say something. But in this case, in the, the management of trauma for somebody bleeding to death, if you see someone bleeding to death, do something about it. So you're not really a bystander anymore. You're a by-doer. Mm-hmm. And that phrase was coined, actually, by one of the members of the National Security Council under the uh, White House Stop the Bleed initiative, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Wow, so that that's a lot of good information in terms of um, the results of studying the, the unfortunate tragedy of at Sandy Hook is just understanding how critical it is uh, to to uh, control hemorrhaging and rapidly get that person uh, to the appropriate medical providers. But it just really highlights the role of uh, the average citizen um, that we all can play a part in in literally saving lives. And so that's that's just an an awesome responsibility, but um, extremely important and rewarding. Uh, so let's let's kind of unpack this notion of um, if you see something, say something. As you mentioned, that came from uh, Homeland Security. Um, we teach that a lot uh, in our active shooter response uh, training and, and, importantly, violence prevention. It's really um, being aware of what those signs are or indicators of potential violence and um, also um, having situational awareness, just kind of having your eyes open and so in that violence prevention context is, is where we saw that, um, that slogan, if you see something, say something. Uh, I sit on the um, uh, behavioral intervention team at Community College of Aurora here in Colorado, and uh, we also have added uh, to our slogan, if you sense something, do something. So again, it's really about that situational awareness and um, not being on a witch hunt, not pigeonholing, not profiling, but really just having your eyes open. Are people in distress? Are they showing a pattern of behavior that looks like they're escalating towards violence? So it, in, in that spirit, we're, again, bystanders who can intervene and, and prevent a tragedy from occurring. Uh, so the context we're now seeing uh, this slogan being used is in um, emergency re- rendering emergency aid. So if, if if you see someone injured, don't just walk by. And it sounds like Paul, it's it, it, they're recommending it's not even enough just to call nine one one, which everybody is kind of well conditioned to do that. It really is about yes, call nine one one and then do something. Uh, yes. Is is that correct, Paul? Kind of that that's Absolutely. the notion. Uh, you, you hit the nail on the head. If you see something, do something mm-hmm. when it comes to bleeding control. And interestingly, um, the Harper Consensus Group uh, published a fourth report in March of 2016, and they really wanted to take a look at what was the willingness of the general population to actually do something mm-hmm. to render aid. So they conducted a survey of random adults. Of over a 1,000 uh, phone calls were made around the country in all 50 states. And what they found was an overwhelmingly large majority of people that be willing to render aid to people that were either in a car accident on a traffic situation 
and even a large majority of people that be willing to render aid to others in a non-safe situation like an active shooter event. Those are the two different uh, control conditions that were put out during the survey. In fact, during the, uh, the final reporting, it was found in that survey 93% of those asked, would it be a good idea to put medical devices in, in the public areas, such as uh, large gathering sites like stadiums, movie theaters, schools, or even in, in uh, offices of buildings? 93% of those people surveyed said, yes, they think that is a good idea. Mm-hmm. So, again, that goes back to your, your premise of, does the public really do want to do something in these situations? And the numbers tell us, yes, they do. Yes, yes. Well, uh, also uh, in, in our active shooter, shooter training, uh, we instruct uh, participants that uh, in the event of an active shooter event and law enforcement enters the premises, their first priority is to stop the threat and secure uh, the premises. And so they will walk past injured people. And that can be a disturbing um, revelation to the participants in the training to know that law enforcement has finally arrived, but they will not stop to help you uh, if you're bleeding or otherwise injured until they've stopped the threat. And so again, it just points to the importance of um, how how valuable and critical the immediate responder, that bystander or by doer, as you as you stated, uh, how vitally important that that person is. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about how the uh, Hartford consensus recommendations would tie directly into um, the safety of, for example, uh, our, our school personnel, students, and visitors, um, but also any other um, at-risk public uh, venues, as you stated, stadiums, for example, or theaters. Again, that's something near and dear to our heart here in Colorado. Um, schools and theaters um, and other public venues. Uh, how do we tie some of those recommendations in? And um, th- imagine that uh, someone listening right now uh, is a school administrator or a workplace decision maker. Uh, what could you say to them about how important these uh, Hartford consensus recommendations are uh, to the safety of our nation's schools and workplaces, for example? Yes, it's, it's a very important uh, document that any manager, leader, administrator should be very familiar with because it provides a, a peer-reviewed, evidence-based document authored by some of the top trauma surgeons and ER physicians in the nation that unanimously agree it's a good idea to put life-saving devices in the hands of people who don't actually fulfill traditional medical roles that may have very little medical background. These, these reports also uh, resulted in the creation of the American College of Surgeons for a website that is just full of resources. The website is bleedingcontrol.org. And again, it's the American College of Surgeons, bleedingcontrol.org. Uh, for your listeners, if they go to that website, they'll not only find the base documents of the Harper Consensus, but also various training tools and resources, videos, public service announcements, uh, evidence-based training that is all free, and that would give and empower those managers and administrators and, and senior leaders in the various sectors of our, our society 
some additional help in case they want to start some of these programs in their respective areas. Mm-hmm. So again, I can't say enough how many other resources are out there. The National Association of EMTs has a course. It's a two-and-a-half-hour course called the BCON course or Bleeding Control course. And again, that curriculum can be run by, by local paramedics and others in the areas if there's partnerships. So there's, again, all these different tools and resources out there to help uh, those that might be reluctant to uh, start these initiatives or might not know what devices would be appropriate for purchase. So there's many different things out there that can help those folks. Mm-hmm. So these recommendations really uh, should empower um, any personnel, administrators who might be nervous about rendering medical aid themselves, that, that there's training out there that's available. Anyone who might be uh, reluctant to commit, commit funds to purchase this equipment, um, we can look at the statistics on um, how how valuable they are in, in literally saving lives. Uh, or if they're uncertain what type of medical devices would be most effective, uh, they can get more information uh, at bleedingcontrol.org. And certainly North American Rescue, which is the company uh, that, that you represent, and, and we'll talk more about your specific recommendations and, and products that North American Rescue has made av- available to the general public. It's not just for law enforcement anymore. It's not just for military and austere environments. It's for everyone, uh, for the general public, and um, that, that's the good news. Uh, Paul, when we, get ba- when we come back from the break, I want you to talk about uh, the White House involvement in this um, important information. They, the White House even has a hashtag, <laughs> and we'll talk about that hashtag uh, when we return. My guest is Paul Vecchio, Vice President of uh, Training at, with North American Rescue. And stay tuned. We'll be right back with some life-saving information. Schools can no longer afford not to invest in a professional evidence-based advanced safety education training program. It's the single most important decision and investment a school administrator will ever make in their professional career. When all else fails, training and preparation are the only things that will increase your chances of survival in a violent incident such as an active shooter or active terrorism. SSI Guardian has set the new standard in advanced safety education by providing evidence-based advanced training programs tailored to your needs. While there are many basic training programs largely based on opinion and emotion. SSI Guardian is the only advanced training program of its type with an accredited continuing education unit or CEU issued by an accredited university. SSI Guardian has set the new standard in advanced safety education by providing evidence-based advanced training and solutions to learning institutions, faith-based and professional organizations. To learn more, call SSI Guardian today at 877-878-5800 or visit guardianprotect.com. To learn more about living well with Dr. Peg, visit drpegradio.com. And now, Dr. Peggy Mitchell Clark. I'm back with Paul Vecchio of North American Rescue. Uh, Paul, how can listeners get in touch with you and learn more about North American Rescue? Probably the best way is to go to our website, which is www. NARescue.com, and we have an entry portal on the home page that shows the various um, groups that we work with, uh, military, law enforcement, EMS, first responders, fire, 
and now we do have also an icon for community. Oh, excellent. So anyone, any one of those uh, links would assist uh, the listener to find out more information. Great. And I'll also have a link to your website at North American Rescue on my website, drpegradio.com. Well, let's talk about this White House hashtag. The, the White House is jumping on the hashtag bandwagon. Right. <laughs> What's the hashtag that's relevant to our conversation today? Okay, so the, the White House Stop the Bleed Initiative really came underneath the umbrella of um, Presidential Policy Directive 8. Uh, President Obama directed that um, policy directive be uh, promulgated through the Department of Homeland Security. And what had uh, spun down from that later on, in conjunction with Hartford Consensus reports, is that there were a number of roundtable meetings that took place uh, under the direction of the National Security Council. Uh, the three roundtables in February of 2015 was really restricted to the physicians and the physician community. The next roundtable included that group plus various national organizations, and that convened in April of 2015. And then the third roundtable meeting, uh, of which I had the honor to be part of, was for industry that actually makes the devices that are used in saving lives in pre-hospital settings. And that was in July of 2015. So once all those meetings took place, uh, the White House launched the official uh, Stop the Bleed website. It's actually now currently on the Department of Homeland Security website. If you Google Stop the Bleed and you'll see the DHS.gov uh, website come out as one of the selections, that will be the proper place to go, which also links, incidentally, to the American College of Surgeons BleedingControl.org website. Okay. So uh, the White House, again, started the initiative. Unfortunately, it was an unfunded effort. I believe now in the, the new administration and, and coming uh, down the road for new fiscal year budgets, there may be some funding opportunities. Uh, DHS does have existing grants that are out there right now where devices like tourniquets and trauma kits, uh, hemostatic agents, they're already line-itemed as authorized equipment listed. So there are opportunities for various groups to apply for grants where they can request these types of um, products to be put into their, their grant requests. So there is opportunity for funding out there for, for some people in the commercial and government and private sectors. Great. And so that hashtag is stop the bleed, hashtag stop the bleed. And so you can take a look and see what kind of information will pop up in your Twitter feed with that hashtag. Um, so let's talk about, Paul, in our, in our remaining time in this last segment, uh, w- actual things that um, bystanders and immediate responders need to know and need to do and the type of equipment that's available and good to know that there's uh, grant funding available uh, to get to get that qu- equipment. So let's uh, talk about hemorrhage control and the methods that a bystander, a uh, an immediate responder would have to be able to stop that um, hemorrhaging in the extremities if someone were to be injured, either at work, at school, out in the, out in the wilderness, if they happen to have the right equipment, uh, what would they need to do? Right. Well, the three methods are basically very, they're very intuitive. Um, placing the hands on the wound and stopping the bleeding immediately. The more, the more blood you can keep inside the body, the better. Now, that's not the end-all uh, type of control that we're really looking for, but that's the initial thing that could be done. The second and, and probably the next level of bleeding control would be the application of some type of pressure dressing, something that can actually 
apply gauze or apply you know, elastic bandage around the gauze to push down upon the wound. But in many cases, that's not enough to stop severe arterial bleeding, and that's where we have to go to the next level by using a tourniquet. And as I'm sure many of the listeners know, the, the tourniquet is basically a device that can be wrapped around the limb above the wound two to three inches where the windlass is, is tightened. It applies constricting pressure around the limb and actually occludes that artery and stops the bleeding. Now, there are cases in which on our anatomy, a tourniquet might not be able to be used. And we're talking about some wounding patterns, maybe in a deep groin area or maybe in a deep uh, armpit or even in the neck. And there are medical devices out there that can deal with that type of issue. They're known as hemostatic dressings. A hemostatic dressing is basically gauze that's impregnated with some type of substance that actually promotes blood clotting cascade and promotes blood clotting to help those areas with some direct pressure for several minutes can actually stop bleeding in those areas that are not amenable uh, to a tourniquet application. Mm -hmm. So those are really your three levels of of hemorrhage control yes. that you can utilize on a person. And and let me back up and just ask some very basic questions. And um, I, I kind of chuckled. I guess we cannot put a tourniquet if the wound is on our neck, huh? No. <laughs> that no. wouldn't work. So let's go back to the most basic that any of us can do without any equipment, as you mentioned, putting direct pressure using our hands. So we, we all have been conditioned now to wash our hands carefully and use our hand sanitizer uh, what are, what are the are there risks involved in terms of uh, someone's bleeding in front of you? You have no other equipment. Is it okay to use our hands if we haven't been able to sanitize them? Well, there certainly is. Um, if with anything, and there's going to be some risk involved with um, body substance isolation. So definitely, you'll have to weigh that type of situation out in your mind. Of there's a person bleeding to death and. You know, what do I have available that I can use that can maybe provide some protection but still stop the bleeding? Okay. So that's going to have to be a, a judgment call on the individual case. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and let's talk a little bit about a tourniquet. So uh, how would I do a makeshift tourniquet? And we, we all watch television. Uh, we watch all kinds of, you know, medical shows or police shows or any type of, you know, drama might have someone who's been injured and we see someone whip off their belt, for example, and um, apply it above the, the wound. Is, is that just Hollywood or is that something we could actually use? Well, there is data that suggests that the tourniquets that are made from improvised device, like a belt or a, a strip of cloth, there's been some success with that, but it's much less uh, so than a, a manufactured tourniquet specifically. But what you want to look for is the wider the band, the less occlusive pressure required to uh, cut off the vessel. So anything that would be thin, like using wire or, or shoelace, would be definitely detrimental and not effective. Mm -hmm. You'd want to have an inch and a half wide uh, strip of something that you could then twist a uh, makeshift windlass around to apply constricting pressure to be effective. Mm -hmm. But again, that's not recommended if you have access to things that are specifically manufactured to do that for you. Right. So talk about how North American Rescue can help us solve these issues and how any individual private citizen can have the appropriate equipment, especially if there's someone who goes hiking or um, they're responsible um, for employees in a particular uh, area that might be prone to accidents. Uh, what kinds of um, equipment uh, does North American Rescue provide, and, and what would be the strategy for acquiring that or disseminating it? 
Right. We, we definitely looked at the evidence and science from, from the battlefield to see what worked in that environment and applied it to the civilian setting. We also, when we met with the National Security Council, we used their packing list of recommended items for the individual kit. And what the uh, National Security Council recommends is that you have an effective tourniquet, you have a six-inch compressible dressing, you have two gauzes that are rolled S-rolled so they can fold out very easily, you have two sets of gloves, you have one set of trauma shears, and you have some type of bag that all those contents can fit into. We actually went a little step beyond the minimum requirement and added a chest seal that can deal with penetrating trauma to the chest and also a hemostatic agent type gauze that can then deal with people that might have injuries in the neck, the deep groin, or the armpit. And your really deployment strategy for these items, let's say in a school setting, is really every classroom should be equipped with one basic kit that I just described. And then maybe in your common areas like the auditoriums and the cafeterias, you should have a station that's very visible, maybe wall-mounted and next to the AED, that contains a number of those kits that can at least um, treat the average number of expected casualties. Going, going back to the FBI report of those 160 incidents that occurred over those years, the average number of casualties per event was about 6.5 people. So we want to see a station that had more than six kits built into it. And then also you might want to think about a specialized kit for your people that are designated uh, supporters, like your school resource officers, your school nurses, so they can be mobile on campus. And that deployment strategy is kind of an overarching way of looking at making sure there's resources everywhere where there might be students or children uh, located so that you can get to them in time. Mm-hmm. And, and Paul, I've, I've seen you demonstrate the use of some of these um, devices and, and equipment, in, is including the tourniquet, and it really doesn't require a ton of, of, of training. Uh, and so this is really an accessible way to help save lives and, and prevent um, more serious injury. Absolutely. In every one of those devices, there's an instructions for use video that we've posted to our website. And again, you could go back to the American College of Surgeons, bleedingcontrol.org. They had videos of instruction also that would help users learn how to use these devices. Mm-hmm. Well, excellent. Thank you so much, um, Paul Vecchio. I appreciate you sharing your expertise with myself and our listeners today. Well, thank you, Dr. Peggy. It's been an honor to, to speak, and I hope this um, will help you and your listeners uh, be safe and everybody come home to their families at the end of the day. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Thank you so much. And listeners, don't forget to tune in every Saturday, 1 to 2 p.m. Mountain Time. Um, go to drpegradio.com to learn more about my personal transformation retreat. My guest has been Paul Vecchio. I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, reminding you to live well. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg, brought to you every week by SSI Guardian. To listen to previous episodes, learn more about Dr. Peg's mental health and safety workshops, or to register for an upcoming VIP personal transformation retreat, visit drpegradio.com. You can also purchase Dr. Peg's books, Do Something Different for a Change, and Doggy Tales, Lessons on Life, Love, and Loss I Learned from My Dog, online at drpegradio.com. And remember to join us every Saturday at 1 p.m. on 94.7 KRKS for Living Well with Dr. Peg. Want to know everything Christian that's going on in Denver? Log on to KRKS.
GrantHopkins.com today. Today, concert events, and even the latest in weather. It's all at your fingertips at krks.com. krks.com.